Matthew 5, 9 through 12, turn there, as Mike just read. Uh, as you turn there, a couple months ago, I'll tell you a story. Tim, sweet Tim, who just led us in worship, invited me to a baseball game. Uh, not the Rangers, but the Frisco Rough Riders, who are a minor league team, but it's sometimes difficult to tell the difference between the Rangers and a minor league team. Uh, and when Tim, I don't care, I don't, go ahead, yeah. When Tim uh, invites you to something, he's real sketchy about it. You're like, hey, where'd you get these tickets? And he's like, don't worry about it. I got someone that I do favors for, and they hook me up. You don't need to worry about it. You just come have a good time. And it just annoys you. And then I asked Kelsey, his wife, like three months later, and she's like, I bought them for his birthday. I was like, okay. So just a normal thing, not this weird mafia thing that Tim is creating. It has nothing to do with the story. I just had to get that off my chest. Uh, so Tim invited me and Bryce, one of our elders, and as we walk into the stadium, uh, immediately, it was very obvious that there is a, a very drastic difference between Bryce, Tim, over here, and me, over here. There was things about them and things about me that, that just created this massive divide, and what that was is that they are baseball fans, enjoy the game of baseball, and I, like most people, think it is boring. <laughs> I don't enjoy the game of baseball. Uh, so just like how they talked, you could tell there was a difference between me and them. They would talk about ERAs. And they would talk about, you know, his slugger's percentage in the third trimester is great. And I was like, this all sounds made up. There's no way this is real. Uh, but the main thing that distinguished them from me was uh, we were sitting right behind home plate and someone would hit a foul ball and it comes, you know, sometimes it goes up in the air and kids try to catch it. And it's always very dangerous and somehow we celebrate that. Uh, but sometimes the ball just comes directly at your face. But there's a giant net in front of you. And this, I'm not kidding, happened about 19 times. A ball would be thrown around 100 miles an hour. A player would hit it. It would fly backwards at us. And I, like a normal human being, would duck. And Tim and Bryce, like two psychopaths, just stayed there. And the net stopped it right in front of their face. And they didn't move. And they would turn at me and mock every single time, right? <laughs> so there were these marks on our life that showed there's a, there's a drastic difference between the two of us. They like the boring sport of baseball. I like being entertained and therefore don't like baseball. Uh, and so similarly, but in a much more eternally significant way, we've been walking through the Beatitudes. And one of the things that Jesus has been showing is what are the marks of the people of God's kingdom? What are the marks of those who are in the kingdom of heaven? And we've been seeing over the past few weeks that they are poor in spirit. They recognize there's no righteousness here. I need to look somewhere else for my righteousness, namely to the righteous one, Jesus, for my righteousness, that we mourn sin, that we are meek, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we are merciful, that we are pure in heart. And then today we're going to finish that list and look at two, three, but really two things, that we are peacemakers, those who are of the kingdom of God are peacemakers, that they are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and that as they are persecuted, they rejoice. Peacemakers, persecuted, and rejoice in that persecution. So let's jump in. Let's look at that first mark of peacemaker. Look at verse 10. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not pacifists. Notice that. This isn't just someone who's anti-war, anti-fighting, or anything like that. Not someone who's just conflict-averse, but rather someone who goes into conflict 
Someone who strives to bring reconciliation where there's brokenness. Someone who strives to bring peace where there's chaos. And Jesus actually is going to leave this pretty vague. He doesn't tell us it's you know, large-scale war or small-scale personal conflict. And I think that's purposeful because these Beatitudes are not meant to be a how-to kind of legalistic manual. How do you just follow the right rules? Rather, what Jesus is showing is just fruits of your heart. So rather than saying they're anti-war, then you wouldn't care about personal conflict. Or I'm just talking about when people are mad at each other, then you wouldn't care about large-scale things. Rather, what he's pointing at is a distinctive thing about your heart, that kind of everywhere you go, there's this longing. There's this disposition to make peace where there is brokenness. When you see people are estranged, you have this desire to go bring reconciliation. When you hear gossip or when you hear slander, something that might bring division, you step into that space and say, no, 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 we're not going to have any division lines here. When you're wronged, rather than giving into the simple or sinful impulse of revenge or retribution, you meet that with blessing, peace. Your longing is for reconciliation. You bring calm to chaos. It's this natural mark of your heart, something that flows out of your heart, that you are a peacemaker. Clarifier number one. This doesn't mean all conflict is necessarily bad. Jesus is going to flip some tables. We'll see that in a few months. Not bad, right? Flip some tables. He's going to say explicitly, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Right? We'll see people who say you're raised in a Muslim family and you trust in Christ, almost certainly you will be kicked out and disowned by your family. We'll see all sorts of good conflict. We'll see Peter rebuked by Jesus. Jesus calls him Satan. Uh, and then we'll see uh, Paul opposes him to his face. I don't know what that means. It doesn't sound great because he stands condemned, right? So there's some good conflict that happens. So I would just say, don't confuse disrupting sin for the sake of pointing people to Jesus with bringing peace and reconciliation to brokenness. This is what we're talking about over here today, not this. Okay, so don't confuse those two. Coexist bumper stickers, those aren't peacemakers. Those are just people who are unaware of the exclusive claims of every one of those religions. So uh, don't confuse that passivity or conflict averseness with peacemaking. So blessed are the peacemakers. There's two sides to this. Two sides to being a peacemaker. Number one is you are someone who doesn't bring division. You are someone who is uh, absolute, will have nothing to do with strife. Paul gives this kind of direction to Timothy, his disciple, in 2 Timothy to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. You, as a peacemaker, have nothing to do with irreverent babble that spreads like gangrene. You're not a causer of division. If you are a causer of division, notice that's the exact opposite of this identity piece of your heart. If division just follows you wherever you go, that's the opposite of being a peacemaker, someone who brings peace, calm, reconciliation. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a really famous preacher in the 20th century who if we listen to himself, we would probably say he seems real, real strict. Uh, he, during his day, he lived in the day of the, the uh, liberal theological movements, all these controversies where people were denying the resurrection and denying the inerrancy of the scriptures and things like that. Uh, and he had a friend named T.T. T. Shield. 
Just all old names just seem so much cooler than our names now. A friend named T.T. Shield, and he was worried because this friend, he said he's, he quit preaching the gospel on Sundays, and now his whole ministry is just pointing out people who are wrong. You know, people who are actually believing wrong, bad things, but now every sermon is basically just calling out people all the time. And Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't like this because he's like, the gospel isn't coming out of your mouth anymore. You're just obsessed with calling people out. And so he actually went and had a conversation with him to kind of gently rebuke him, and said that. I, I, I miss the days when you would preach the gospel and you'd let the Spirit convict hard and lead people back to truth, and now you're just calling everybody out all the time. And T.T. Shield responded with something that sounds fine. He said, well, you know, if a patient has cancer, I don't want to put a Band-Aid on that, right? i got to get in there and get the cancer out. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was actually a, a doctor before he became a pastor, said, yes, I get it, but... There's a difference between being a gentle surgeon and being knife happy. Having what is called a surgical mentality, which is just I got to get in there and operate no matter how much. Being knife happy. And so there's, you see that mass, uh, huge difference between someone who cares about truth, would die for it, and corrects in gentleness or speaks the truth in love, and those who are just knife happy. Those who just call out, nothing comes out of their mouth except the people who have drifted from the faith. Is that you? Is that a mark of your heart? As the nation goes crazy and you read the news every day and you're on Twitter all the time and you see people drifting from truth and wokeness controversy happens, are you knife happy? Are you constantly frustrated because all you can think about is how wrong people are and if only they could be more like you, more awesome like you and hold to truth? Or is a mark of your life wanting to bring peace and reconciliation. Does your heart break for them and pray that they come back to it? Or do you cancel them, right? Conservative cancel culture. Goodbye, pastor who just said something woke. I guess you've been lost in the tidal wave. Are you knife happy? You see the difference there. So that's the first mark. You don't create division all the time. That's not a mark of your heart. And rather, the other side of that coin, you actively bring peace to hostilities. You long for quarrels to end. Notice he doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers, peacemakers, someone who goes into controversy to bring healing. You can avoid fights all day long and still not be a peacekeeper. You can just be passive. But those of the kingdom are peacemakers. And why are peacemakers blessed as they move towards conflict? What does Jesus say? Why are they blessed? They will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called children, sons of God. And this word called here isn't just like a name tag, isn't just like a jersey you put on. It's not just a label. It's rather something that is deep, deeply a part of your identity. And so this fruit is being born out of your life. Uh, a story that I tell to my shame years ago, I think I've told this before, but it was a long time ago and most of you are new, uh, so recycle it. Um, years ago, my wife, for her birthday, wanted to do a Tough Mudder. If you don't know what a Tough Mudder is, it's where you run 10 miles in mud, and there's fun obstacle courses all throughout, like running through electric wires that shock you, stuff like that. That's the woman I married. Uh, she was like, nothing would make me happier than to do this for my birthday. Uh, and so I said, okay, being the loving husband that I am. And uh, it's a team sport kind of thing. This isn't like a marathon where you put this, your time on the back of your car or anything like that. So you gather a team. So we gathered some of our buddies and uh, you need a team name. And one of my favorite shows ever is called Band of Brothers. It's a mini series. 
following uh, Easy Company paratroopers in World War II, and Claudia found the T-shirts that they wore uh, in their training in Tacoa, Georgia, which had a little guy parachuting, says Tacoa, Georgia, and U.S. paratroopers on the top. And we thought, this will be awesome. We'll wear these. This will be our team name. Uh, and we'll all have matching shirts. This will be so much fun, getting electrocuted to celebrate your birth. <laughs> and so we go, and uh, we park. And as we're walking up, uh, I'm seeing real, actual, real-life veterans with shirts with their you know, group. But it's a group that they've fought and died with. And I start to realize pretty quickly, we've made a horrible, horrible mistake. Uh, so we're approaching, and they love this place. They're getting you hype, and there's literally a guy on a mic saying, you know, trying to get everybody ready to go and run. And the second, I mean, I was literally walking like this. Hi, yeah, I can't wait. Where's the starting line? Uh, just hiding myself. And the second we entered, he goes, we got some paratroopers here. Everybody celebrate these guys. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Okay, no. And I was like, he goes, no, we're going to celebrate you anyway. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get killed by all these real veterans for being the poser that I currently am. Uh, I was just imagining running, and they'd be like, oh, where did you serve? Like, nowhere. I liked a TV show. Uh, and so I'm, <laughs> the second it started, I dove in the mud, covered myself, and then we had a great time. Uh, but you see the difference. <laughs> Jesus is not saying, you're called the son of God like you've just put on this T-shirt. You're a white kid from Denton, Texas that's never done any sort of manual labor a day in your life, much less gone to war, but you put on this t-shirt, he's saying, you're a veteran, right? This is who you are. This is something I'm saying, it's, it's a reality of who I have made you, something that's now to the core of who you are. You are called a son or a daughter of God because you are a son or a daughter of the living God. You see, being a peacemaker is not some general ethic not some random rule floating around in the sky that we need to follow. It's not just a way to get into the kingdom, as if we do this, then we get in. Rather, it's a mark of something God has already done in your heart. It's not you've earned your way. And he says, okay, now that you've been good enough, you've been peaceful enough, come into my family. Rather, when you were a rebel, sent his son to bring you in. You've been adopted, not just into the kingdom, into the very family of the king. And so you are called a son of God when you're a peacemaker because, notice this, you are reflecting. When you are a peacemaker, you reflect the character of your father. One of the most fundamental things about our God is that he is a God who brings peace to chaos. Genesis uh, 1, 1 through 2 talks about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness hovered over the face of the deep, these pictures of kind of chaotic waters and things like that. And then we see, let there be light, and God shaping, forming, and creating, right? Bringing peace to chaos. And we see something similar at the very end of your Bibles in Revelation 21, when a new heavens and the new earth come, and the old one passes away, and the sea will be no more. You ever notice that? Does it seem weird to you? The sea in the mind of, of Jewish thought is this place of chaos, it's this place of terrible unpredictability and it will be no more in the new heavens and the new earth because God is a God who brings peace to chaos. That's who your father is. What about your savior? What is the story of our redemption in the chaotic world of creation? Everything post-Genesis 3, chaotic 
rebellion, the creatures God created out of his goodness and love are in rebellion against their creator, and Jesus comes and he's called the Prince of Peace. What do we sing at Christmas? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life. Behold, he brings, risen with healing in his wings. He comes down, and one of the first things we declare is peace is coming because the Prince of Peace is coming. And you think about Jesus' life. Everywhere he goes, these people whose lives are just chaos, lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes, murderers, zealots, whoever comes and they encounter him and they encounter peace. And all the chaos of their life seems to fade away as they follow him. One of the most famous stories about Jesus, the, the crazy storm, he's sleeping in a boat and he declares to the storm, peace, be still. Your savior is one that brings peace everywhere that he goes. And ultimately, he brings peace to our chaotic hearts in his death and in his resurrection. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility he came and preached peace. There it is again, to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You see over and over and over and over again, a distinctive mark of your Savior is he brings peace, not just to creation, but to your very heart. Peace, reconciliation. Your Father is the God of peace. Your Savior is the Prince of peace, and you as his people, as the people of the kingdom, are meant to be a people of peace, those who make peace. When you are called a son and a daughter of the living God because you're a peacemaker, you reflect his character and you also join his mission. You preach peace to those who are far off. You bring reconciliation. Paul says, We've been given, we've been reconciled to God, and now we have a ministry. Of reconciliation. You preach the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. You see, this isn't just a nice thing. Don't cheapen this. You're reflecting the very character of your God and you're joining the very mission of your God to bring peace in the chaotic world when you are a peacemaker. So, is that a mark of your life? Are you just as loud? Are you just as angry? Are you just as cynical? Are you just as tribalistic as everyone in our culture, including our church culture? Are you knife happy? Or the exact opposite? the mark of those in the kingdom? Do you long for brokenness to be reconciled? And do you enter into it to make that happen by the Spirit's power? 
Do you commune with the Prince of Peace? Do you let the peace of God dwell in you richly so that everywhere you go, like everywhere Jesus went, you bring a peace that surpasses all understanding? That's the mark, the first mark. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What's the second mark? Second mark, again, I said at the beginning, this is really the next two are one. Uh, We're going to look at verse 10, persecuted, and then verse 11 and 12. We're going to expand that a little bit, but let's look at that first one first. What's the next mark of the Christian life or of of those in the kingdom? Persecution, verse 10. Blessed are those, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's there's another weird one. Right? Peacemakers, sons of God, you're like, that makes sense. I know I'm supposed to be nice. Uh, but these are weird. You know, we've got blessed are the poor. How is poverty a blessing? Blessed are those who mourn. Right? That's another weird one. And here's another, perhaps the weirdest. Blessed are those who are persecuted, literally physically persecuted, sometimes to the point of death. What's, what's Jesus getting at here? Why is this a blessing? Why are the poor blessed? We looked at this two weeks ago. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Because... They have the riches of the kingdom. They recognize the poverty here, and therefore they have the riches of the kingdom. Why are those who mourn blessed? Because they have the comfort of the God of all comforts. And here, why are the persecuted blessed? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. The fundamental thing about our world One of the most fundamental things about our world is that it is the dominion of darkness. Uh, Claudia's grandfather, who is very French, he couldn't be more French. Uh, He lives in Paris. You can't get more French than that. Uh, Love him. He's one of my favorite people, Uh, but was an atheist most of his life. And so we would debate. He would would want to, he, he did not love Claudia going to seminary and kind of pushing all of her chips in with Jesus. And so he, every time we would have dinner, we'd have a great time. And then he'd be like, and another thing. Claudie, stop this madness. And then we talk about it. Uh, and so one time we had a nice long debate, and uh, it ended with the only thing that we could agree on. And he said, I, I just think we disagree, except one thing that I agree on. I think uh, the thing that's most true of our world is that man is bad. And I said, you are certainly right. That is the one thing that can be true of our world. This dominion of darkness we live in is a place where death reigns. Death is undefeated, except for one. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Death is undefeated. Every one of us will die. There's brokenness. There's evil. There's pain. Our hearts are bit towards revenge. There's hatred. All those things reign. The people of the world, how are our hearts described? Sinfully wicked. We're the people that call good evil and evil good. And the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, would put Saddam and Hitler and anybody else want to throw on that list to shame. Makes them look like saints compared to his wickedness. And so when the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of light invades the darkness, the darkness does not sit idly by and say, come, take territory, right? It lashes out. It persecutes. And so what Jesus is saying here is, if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, if this dominion of darkness comes after you, if the world hates you, that reveals something. What does that reveal? Perhaps the most glorious thing that could be true about you. That, Colossians 1, he has delivered you, delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. 
the very fact that you're persecuted, that the world hates you, reveals something eternally glorious about you, that you are a member. You've been transferred out of the dark world into the glorious kingdom that will reign forever one day in perfect peace. That's what persecution reveals. Something that's kind of difficult for us to grasp because we don't, we don't face persecution a lot uh, in our day. I, I actually went through the past 2,000 years and thought about every year, no, every century, and was like, I think we're the least persecuted, at least in this place. There's other people in the world right now that are perhaps the most persecuted, but I think we, that might be a hyperbolic statement, but I think it's true. We might be the least persecuted people in the history of the church. Uh, so it is difficult for us to grasp the reality that the scripture constantly says, which is persecution is normal for those who follow Jesus. I think every book in the New Testament, except for 1 Timothy, promises persecution and talks about it often. I, I, I didn't pull a verse from every book, but I pulled two because I think it illustrates the point. Jesus in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things I will do, or they will do to you on my account, on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And then if you want to even plainer verse, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Thank you, Paul. Very, very straightforward, okay? So if you're not a Christian in this room, here's the worst sales pitch of all time. Come to Jesus and be persecuted for his name. It's the exact same sales pitch he gave. We'll look at that in a few months as well. Persecution is normal in the Christian life, yet the Christian life is not just this constant state of misery because what the persecution reveals about you is the most glorious thing that could be revealed about you, that you are of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First Peter 4, look at this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you as to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So don't be surprised when persecution comes as if it were weird. It's not weird. It's normal, verse 13, but rejoice, gets even weirder, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when, he, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Paul in Philippians 1, for it has been granted to you. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his name, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I and now hear that I still have. There is persecution, there is suffering, there is pain in following Jesus, but the pain that is there pales in comparison to the glorious truth that it reveals that you have been brought in, those who are far off have been brought near. It reveals the blessedness of this 
beatitude. There's an old story of John Wesley that may not be true, but it's a good story, so let's pretend it's true. might be true. Uh, John Wesley, a uh, traveling evangelist, was a big uh, player in the First Great Awakening, all throughout England especially, and so he was going, uh, riding his horse, and he realized he hadn't been persecuted for a few days, and his conclusion was, I must be in some sort of secret sin. That, that's the only explanation he could come to of why he hadn't been persecuted for three days. And so he got off his horse and began to pray and ask God to search his heart, see where he had strayed. And a local farmer saw him, hated the fact that he was praying, and threw a brick at him that barely missed. And then he praised God for encouraging him and renewing the truth that he had been faithful. And he got back on his horse and he kept preaching. Hope that story is true. It's a cool story. But you see that. The expectation that if I'm doing the work of the glory of the Son of God in a world that hates him, the world will hate me, and persecution will come, but all that does is reaffirm that I am doing the work of the King of Kings, the glorious work of the King of Kings. Now, two more things uh, that are or two clarifiers to notice before we move on. Notice here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Number one, do not lump anything you don't like into the category of Christian persecution. Okay, I know a lot of you are armed, so this is going to get tense. And if I see any of your hands go down, I will run because I'm not armed. I trust you for that, so don't turn on me, okay? (laughs) Mask mandates for two months was not Christian persecution. You don't have to like it. You could be mad about it, but let's not, you know, let's not be like, it's because they secretly hate Christians, which is why they want to make us wear masks so we don't get sick, okay? Let's just not play that out. When people insult Messi, when they say Ronaldo's better than Messi, or when they say that September is too early to begin singing Christmas music, I feel pain, right? Those are, I consider that personal persecution, but let's not cheapen the name of Jesus by pretending that we've suffered for his sake, okay? So notice that. Be very careful before you wear this verse as a badge just because you don't like your situation. Notice number one. Notice number two. Notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for self-righteousness' sake. We live in the world of us versus them, It's in our society. We're on the good team. They're on the bad team. We always have pure motives. They always have evil motives. And so what we're not good at is examining our motives because we've already concluded that they're great. And if anyone would dare question us, what about them, right? And surely, I mean, I'm on the side of the good. And so it would be very, very easy as persecution comes your way to just conclude it would be impossible for you to do anything in the wrong because your prayers are, God, I thank you. You haven't made me like these other men right? These, you know, people ruining the world, these tax collectors, these liberals, whoever it is, I think that I'm on the side of the good Lord. You're welcome, right? Be very careful. Examine your heart very, very closely, lest you be persecuted rightfully for self-righteous sake. There's no blessing there. That is not a mark of those of the kingdom. So how do you protect against that? Quite simply, don't pull this out by itself Keep this in the list of Beatitudes. Also, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who know there's no righteousness here. I'm a constant, dependent sinner saved by a gracious God. Meekness, keep it in the list with meekness and with 
peacemakers. Keep it in the list of the whole Bible while we're at it, that you love your enemy, that you pray for those who persecute you, that when you're slapped, you turn the other cheek. When you're reviled, you bless. What does Jesus do as he's suffering? What does Stephen cry out when he's suffering to the point of death? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. So how do you protect from self-righteousness? Don't forget the rest of the Bible. There you go. Write that down. Don't separate this from the rest. Okay, that's the second mark, persecution. Third mark, an expansion of this, those who rejoice, not just endure, rejoice in their persecution. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. So this verse uh, is kind of a hinge verse. So it's kind of the last beatitude, but now he's speaking uh, to them in the second person, but it's also kind of orienting us to the next section that Tim's going to start next week of the distinctiveness of us with the rest of the world, namely that we're salt and light and things like that. So it's kind of a hinge text, but notice it's expanding, verse 10. So it's not just physical persecution anymore. Now insults have been included, reviling, all kinds of evil, which is kind of a catch-all. Anything bad, the world can throw at you. Throw at you. So it's expanded. Notice there's a clarification. It's not just for righteousness' sake, as if there were a generic ball of righteousness floating around, but rather for Jesus' sake, the righteous one's sake, on my account. And then now, not only do we are we just blessed in the midst of persecution, we are now commanded to be glad and rejoice. Okay, so it gets even more strange. Now we have to rejoice and be glad. And by the way, this, Jesus isn't just saying, put a smile on your face when you're persecuted. This, this word, notice he's be glad and rejoice. In fact, this Greek word is the same word that's used in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the lamb, literally the picture of eternal rejoicing. Okay, so Jesus isn't using small words here. So what's he getting at here? Whatever he's getting at, the early church believed. The New Testament church believed, because we see this all over the place. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Colossians 1, 24, now I, Paul speaking, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And one of my favorite stories, Acts 5, right when the church is beginning, Peter, John are preaching. They're arrested and they're beaten and they're charged. Don't preach the gospel anymore. And they say this. Then they left the presence of the council, after being beaten, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to, be shame, or to suffer dishonor for the name. All throughout the New Testament, we see the people who follow Jesus rejoicing in suffering. So the question is, why? Why are they rejoicing in their suffering? And Jesus here gives us two reasons in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, And for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Reward in heaven, and they persecuted the prophets before you. Those are the two reasons. So let's let's take those in reverse order. Let's look at the prophets first. Jesus is essentially saying, when you are persecuted, when you're insulted, when you're hated because of me, rejoice because you're in good company. You're in very good company. When you read the Old Testament, you will see generation after generation after generation 
that reject the goodness of the God that has just delivered them to dive headfirst into idolatry. You see injustice being poured throughout the streets. You see child sacrifice sometimes. You see rampant evil and rampant rejection of their God. And so God will send prophet after prophet after prophet and say, call them back to me. Tell them to repent. Tell them they're worshiping something that doesn't hear their prayers. It's a piece of wood. It can't see them. It doesn't know their faults or needs like I do. It's not even a real God. I'm the only living God. Call them back to me. Warn them that wrath is coming. Judgment is coming if they don't turn back, but turn them back to a merciful God. And prophet after prophet after prophet preaches that message, and they are insulted, and they are hated, and they are called killjoys, and they are beaten, and many of them are killed. And so what Jesus is getting at here is the reality that the mission of God has always been carried forth by suffering people. The mission of God has always been carried forth by suffering people. The prophets suffer in calling the people back to God. Their heroes, once they're dead, in their life, they're hated. And they're killed as a result. How is the mission of God ultimately won? Through the greatest display of suffering imaginable. The suffering servant getting on a cross. The mission of God has always been carried forth by suffering people. And after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, nothing has changed in the mission of God's church. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ has always been carried forth by suffering, persecuted, joyful saints who joyfully endure in suffering. There's a great book called The Destroyer of the Gods by Larry Hurtado, who traces the first couple centuries uh, and just simply asks the question, first couple centuries of the early church, and asks the question, how is it that this group kind of turned the world upside down? How is it that the culture of the Roman Empire was turned upside down by these persecuted, mocked, hated Christians? And so he looked at actually all their their kind of persecutions and, and looked at, one, they were hated because they didn't participate in the pagan worship, so they're actually called atheists, ironically, because they didn't believe and worship the Roman gods. Uh, they were called cannibals for two reasons. One, communion, so they're talking about eating, eating flesh and drinking blood of Jesus, and it was being misunderstood. But they would also, uh, they adopted unwanted children like crazy. Uh, and there was no orphanages in that day. If you didn't want a kid, you literally threw it outside the city to die, and Christians would go gather up the child, bring it into their home, And the only explanation from the surrounding society is they must be eating those babies, literally. I mean, it was a common insult. They were called incestuous because they're having these secret gatherings and they're calling each other brother and sister and things like that. And so like, what else is going on, right? Right? All the things that were distinctive marks of them loving Jesus were being misunderstood and they were hated for it. Yet in the midst of that persecution, their witness spread throughout the empire like wildfire. Because when they were hated, they blessed. When they were reviled, they blessed. And when they were killed, they forgave. And their brothers and sisters forgave. And the witness was so strong that something supernatural had to be happening. And long before Constantine declared the empire Christian, the culture had been turned upside down. Notice that joyful sufferers carry forth the mission of God. And we could keep going throughout the centuries. We could look at 
the thousands, millions in India and Burma and all over that do not praise the name of Jesus unless William Carey and Adoniram Judson go and suffer for the name of Jesus. The gospel is carried forth by joyful sufferers. Have you ever thought about how did Christianity get from 12 to however many millions throughout the centuries? How did it get from Israel, 12 guys in Israel, 2,000 years ago to McKinney, Texas now? How did it come to you? And the answer is joyful sufferers. You have an English Bible in your lap right now because people joyfully suffered and were killed for it. There is no benefit of Christianity that has been paid for by joyful sufferers. And so the question you need to ask yourself is how is it going to get to your great-grandkids? And how are the unreached peoples going to be reached? Nothing changes. It's through joyful suffering. So Jesus getting at this, when you are hated, rejoice because you are in good company and you are fighting the cause of the eternal king. C.T. Studd, who is a missionary, has a famous quote, only one life which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And Anne, when I'm dying, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. That's the first reason. You're in the company of God's people. You're in good company. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the first reason. What's the second reason? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is essentially saying the way you rejoice when all the hatred of this world is poured out on you is you have your eyes set on another world. When this life throws everything it can at you, you can be glad when your eyes are set on the next life, the eternal life that will make this life a vapor, a blip compared to what you will one day inherit in your eternal life. Have your eyes up in eternity. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, this is Paul. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died. Hear this, if you're a Christian, this is true of you. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears at the second coming, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your mind up there. Why? Your life is up there. You can endure the worst of the worst of the worst of this life gladly when your eyes are set up there because you've died here and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How does Paul joyfully endure suffering? We read earlier, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. How does he do that? We even know some of his sufferings. He's beaten 35 times, that scene in the Passion. He takes that apparently more than once. He's stoned, he's shipwrecked, he's hated by all, he's slandered, he's falsely accused. This whole list is very much true of him. And he says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Where are his eyes in suffering? Eternal glory. John Patton, I just finished his autobiography. I mentioned his father last week, and about 19 of you asked for that book, so hopefully a lot of you read it. John Patton was a missionary in the 19th century to these island of cannibals called the New Hebrides, uh, somewhat off the coast of Australia. And 
15 years before he went, no one had ever been there, no missionary had ever been there, and the first two to go there were named John Williams and James Harris, and they went there, and they got off the boat, and they got on the shore, and within minutes, they were killed, cooked, and eaten. And the people that had just dropped them off watched the whole thing. And John Patton, about a decade later, says, I want to go. They haven't heard the witness of the glorious Savior yet. And one of his elders said, don't go there. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. And his response was, sir, you're very old, and soon you're going to go in the ground, and you're going to be eaten by worms. And so whether by worms or by cannibals, both of us will have glorious resurrected bodies at the end of days. Where are his eyes? As people are telling him, don't go tell people about Jesus. His eyes are set at the resurrection in eternity. He's died here. His eyes are up there. And he does go, and he quite literally uh, is almost killed every day. That's not hyperbole. He's almost killed every day. And here's a passage uh, that I have for us of how he endured. This is, he writes this as someone has a gun at his head. This is his commentary several decades later. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God, and I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken to me, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave a hand with which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow would leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth, and he rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the south sea. Where are his eyes? As he endures suffering often, every day. And look at the confidence. I'm immortal until he's done with me. Not a bullet will hit me. Not a club will come down on my head without his permission. His eyes are very much in another world. And so he joyfully endures, and I won't spoil it, but everyone becomes a Christian. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so his eyes are in another world. Again, don't let the persecutions and the sufferings of this world just toss you around. Have your eyes set on another world and stand on an unmoving foundation, namely that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. What is the ultimate reward? What are we waiting for when we get there? What will be the ultimate reward when we get to heaven? Why is it so glorious? Why are people crying out in Revelation 19, rejoicing at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Quite frankly, it's because they have the Lamb. They have the one that they will spend eternity with. They have our Savior, the one who's preaching these very words. He is the reward. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now always. Thou, thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure. Thou art. Revelation 21 and 22. The last two chapters of your Bible, which are the most comforting passages in the whole Bible, we see this glimpse into what will one day be the eternal reality for all of us where 
The former things are passed away, the new heavens and the new earth come down. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Every pain is taken away, every tear is wiped away. The throne of God and of the Lamb is in the middle of the city, and a river of life is pouring out, bringing life everywhere it goes. The tree of life is back there, and then the crescendo in Revelation 22.4, and we will see his face. Five seconds of gazing into the glorious, beautiful, warm beams of Jesus' face will melt away every pain of this life. And every second of suffering will be infinitely worth it. Have your eyes fixed there and you can rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That wraps up our list of the Beatitudes. We're about 190th done with the Sermon on the Mount, so we'll finish in 2059, I think, is our... But the question that we've kind of asked every time is, Jesus describing these hearts that, if we're honest with ourselves, don't look like us. At least, it's not like our main bent. If you know anything about your heart, you know you're bent towards chaos, not... Peace, And so is this, just a, is this just something we need to muster up in our own willpower? Jared's yelling at us, and so I guess i got to do better to make him less mad. He's very intimidating, though he's not armed, right? I know that's what you're all thinking right now, uh, right? So h- how do we get here? How do we get hearts that we know are bent towards sin, that are wrestle with the flesh, that are chaotic, that not just long to avoid persecution, we actually want revenge, if we're honest with ourselves. How does that change? How do we actually become peacemakers? How do we become the people of the kingdom? And the answer is, when your heart, when my heart was nothing but chaotic, the ultimate peacemaker came, and he took your eternal suffering, your personal hell, if you want to call it that, on himself. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Notice was there, refiled, all kinds of evil spoken against him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. He took your wounds so that you could be healed. He was cast out so that you could be reconciled. The true son of God, who's eternally been with the father, was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The true son was forsaken so that you could be called, you could be adopted as a son As a daughter of God, he took the storm of God's wrath. It was all poured out on him. There's nothing left. It's all been poured out on him so that he could take your chaotic heart and say, peace be still. Your eternal suffering, the cup of God's wrath, he took, not just enduring. He didn't just, he's not the best, you know, white knuckler at enduring persecution. He took it. Joyfully, he was the, he's the ultimate joyful sufferer, Hebrews 12. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and weight which clings so closely. Let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He's the ultimate peacemaker, and he's the ultimate joyful sufferer. He took infinite pain so that you could have eternal joy, so that you could be glad in every circumstance. And so we live as peacemakers, as joyful sufferers in him, because in him and in him only do we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Do we have a heavenly reward that can never be taken away from you? Height, depth, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nothing can separate you from his love. And through him, you can be poor in spirit because you have the riches of the kingdom. You can mourn sin because in him you are eternally comforted by the God of all comforts. You can be meek knowing that in him you inherit the new heavens and the new earth. You can hunger and thirst for righteousness knowing that he is the only one who can satisfy you. You can be merciful because he has shown you infinite mercy. You can be pure in heart and see God, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you can be a peacemaker knowing that he's brought you into the kingdom, that he's made you a son and a daughter, and you can joyfully suffer. So look to him, have your eyes set on his face, and live through him. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask you to change our hearts forever. There is very little we can do, if anything we can do, without your intervention. But praise you that you say Jesus is the founder and the perfecter at our faith. The good work that he has begun in us, he will be faithful to complete. It's not just that he saves us and then sanctification is up to us. You are the one who gives us your spirit And so I pray now that as your word hovers over our heads, that your spirit would take it deep into our hearts, that these things wouldn't just be nice reminders that we hope others think of us, but that truly they would be marks of our hearts, that those who see our lives in this world of darkness would see light, would see something radically different, and would have no other explanation than the intervention of the King of Kings. And I pray that as though we don't endure much suffering on a day-to-day basis, that is no guarantee of a future sufferingless life. I pray that we would be those who endure, knowing that our reward is great and knowing that we are seated with those who have gone before us and have carried forth your gospel and knowing the ultimate truth that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. You've guaranteed us victory because it's not built on our efforts, it's built on yours. And so I pray that you minister to our hearts and you change our hearts, conform us more into the image of your son, that we might look more like him, that we might hate the sin that turns our eyes from him, and that no matter the day, no matter the hour, our eyes might be set on his face and we might walk in the joy that is only available in you. We praise you and pray in his holy name. Amen.